redefining narratives and shifting perspectives. This is Story Noir. chapter 19 of the story noir podcast i'm your host opal and if you're new welcome if you're not new thanks so much for tuning in i'm really excited to share this week's episode with you because it's a little bit different as evidenced by the intro it technically is going to be just me however i'm going to be sharing a pre-recorded conversation that i had at the west oakland cultural action network blues in Landis Liberation Festival. Quite a long uh, mouthful there. However, I was able to curate their storytelling pavilion where I had two separate conversations, one which you'll hear in this episode, and then for chapter 20, you'll also hear that episode that I'll provide a little bit of background and context on. So it's a little bit of a back-to-back episode kind of thing. And so this portion was a conversation that I had with Miss Dorothy Lazard, And Miss Dorothy is a retired librarian from Oakland, California. And I was first introduced to her when I heard her segment on the Right Now-ish podcast. A good friend of mine, Pendarvis Harshaw, the curator of it, had a conversation with her in February of 2020 that gave a little bit more background into who she is as Oakland's head librarian. And so the context that we were speaking under at the storytelling pavilion was with her as an author as she debuted her novel memoir what you don't know will make a whole new world i definitely encourage you to check it out we talk a little bit about it during our conversation but i will read the introduction for you on the back what you don't know will make a whole new world said mom ella to her precocious granddaughter dorothy lazard in the summer of 1969 though meant to humble her These words only embolden Lazard in her insatiable intellectual journey to understand her young self, her race-driven society, and the path that would lead her to become a community pillar and memory keeper. In this engrossing coming-of-age story, Lazard charts her journey from an orphanage in segregated St. Louis to her adopted hometown of Oakland, California. Seduced from a young age by the power of the written word, Lazard unearthed new worlds and dreamed of futures in the sanctuary of library stacks, the springboard to her own trajectory towards self-determination. Lazard's story, told vividly through her childhood and teenage eyes, connects her early readerly pursuits to her career as a celebrated public historian, taking us through the summer of love, the murder of Emmett Till, the flourishing of the Black arts movement, and beyond. As she writes with honesty about the challenges she faced in her youth, including the loss of both parents, Lazard's memoir remains triumphant, animated by curiosity, careful reflection, and deep enthusiasm for life. And so I was so honored when I did meet Miss Dorothy. I guess I was so starstruck, I forgot to press record on the first part of this conversation. So please bear with me as my first kind of live podcast show. However, you're definitely in for a treat. And so without further ado, definitely tap in, get your coffee, and kick back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. Thank you. And um, 
And it was, it was a great way to get to know the city, being a librarian in the city, because as you know, everybody comes to the public library. And so it was a, a career that I was honored to uh, play a part in, in the city that, and in a particular library that I grew up in. Uh, so that main library is where I spent a lot of my time becoming a serious reader and also being inspired to become a writer. And so what I wanted to do, um, a lot of people have a, a sense that, have a notion that I started writing this book after I retired in December of 2021. That's not true. I don't write that fast. Uh, parts of this book were published, uh, not published, but certainly written many years ago. And I'd write something and you know put it away and write something else and put it away. And uh, as we were approaching 2017, 2018, I was thinking, what can I do to celebrate 50 years in California. Um, you know, my family had come out here in 1968, uh, 2017, I started thinking about, what do you do to commemorate 50 years anyplace, or 50 years doing anything? And it seemed uh, inadequate to just have a party and say, oh, I've been here 50 years, you know. The party kind of comes and goes. So what I did was I uh, pulled out those uh, essays that I'd written and all those remembrances that I could gather and, and started to really look at this project as a book to really kind of celebrate and honor and document uh, my fading memories. But uh, just a time and a place, I think I grew up in a, a particular time in the city's history where the city was very vibrant and uh, our culture was held up in a way that um, I hope continues into the future. So um, that was my inspiration. Yeah, well you're an inspiration to all of us. Firstly, you know, thank you so much for um, commemorating this book. And so essentially, I read the book, you all should definitely read it. But one of the things that stuck out to me was essentially a reflection, the intention on why you chose to write the book and I found when reading it that it was very, like there was a lot of vivid detail. You had talked about the differences in cuisine from growing up in the Midwest to coming to California, saying, do we eat tamales out of cans and beans out of cans and things like that? And so let's start from the beginning. As a little girl, what do you remember about coming to San Francisco um, compared to today with those differences? Compared to today? Yes. Uh, well, we came to San Francisco to live with my mother's uh, mother, uh, who I didn't know. My mother didn't really talk about her mother, so that was a signal right away that there was some sense of estrangement between the two women. And um, we came out here, and well, I don't know, I just found San Francisco, we landed in San Francisco first. We didn't move to Oakland until a few years later. Uh, and we moved into the Haight-Ashbury in the 60s, and there was just like hippies and marijuana and drugs and a lot of stuff that I had never seen before. And also a lot of people I had never seen before. You know, like St. Louis was a very, in the 60s and onward, was a very racially segregated place. And so I didn't know what a Mexican was or a Filipino or a Vietnamese or, you know, I just didn't have this kind of 
uh, notion about diver racial diversity at all. It was like, you're black or you're white, or maybe you're Italian, but you know, you know it's just like they were white people then too, you know? Uh, and that was a process that is not my journey to talk about. But um, so out here, the thing that really struck me initially was uh, just culturally, it was such a different space, you know? Uh, also, just to give you some context, um, my brother and I had spent the previous year and a half in an all-white orphanage because of my mother's illness and my father's advanced age. And so uh, we came out here, got to know our relatives, got introduced to a lot of different food. I mentioned the food because, you know, I tell the story from the uh, the perspective of a kid. I didn't yeah. want, you know, it's a very different story if I told this story yeah. from an adult's perspective. Um, and I wanted to, I, I made that decision because I wanted to emphasize that sense of wonder that I had yeah. as a kid where you're discovering everything and everything's new and who, who eats any kind of meat out of a can? You know, it's just like tamales out of a can and, TV dinners and just things we weren't used to. My father was a, a railroad cook when he worked. I mean, I was born after he retired. Um, but, um, and, you know, he cooked for us every day. And it was, you know, fresh food, as fresh as you could get it anywhere where it snows. Uh, so it was just uh, kind of amazing to see what my grandmother was cooking and eating and stuff. And she was a great cook, you know, green, you know, traditional Southern black woman, greens, cornbread, sometimes chitlins. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, um, you know, all, just your tr traditional um, African-American Southern cuisine, mm -hmm. she was good at. But there was also all this other food that kind of caught my attention, which is why I mentioned it in the book. Um, because you know what I was learning without having a word for it, I was learning what culture is and how it gets transmitted and how it's different in different parts of the country. You know, um, I wouldn't dare eat a tamale out of a can now. <laughs> so, it's you know, true. That's, yeah. And so I had a question around um, the library and your relationship to the library since. I know I went to the library as a little girl. It is a space where it kind of extends beyond cultural bounds. We're talking about you growing up in segregated um, times. And so how has your relationship to the library as a little girl transformed into um, how you are today? Clearly the queen of the library. What, ha what role has the library played in your life is essentially my Well, uh, the library plays a huge role in my life because it's where I realized that I had power. Mm. It was the first place where I had a card with my name on it, mm. where it, it made me feel like I was a citizen, mm. you know, that I was part of this community. And so when I first got my library card, which, you know, my grandmother didn't want me to have, I read about that in the book, because uh, she thought I was going to lose something and she'd have to pay for it, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, the library let me know that, you know, I had a brain, 
uh, I could have an expansive imagination, that I can have the secret life away from my disapproving grandmother. Um, and that there was just a tremendous amount of uh, information that I didn't know and could have access to in this particular place. So um, that lure uh, of having a place available to you where you could get educated and get inspired and learn how to do things, you know, practical things as well as imaginative things, that has never lost its uh, appeal to me. Yeah. And so, and that was true even as I worked as a librarian yeah. for 38 years. You know, I was mid-career when I came to UC Ber uh, from UC Berkeley to the public library system. I'd already been in the profession for 17 years. Um, so, you know, and just learning um, how to be in community mm -hmm. is always kind of an honor. I see it as an honor. Yeah. Um, and and what, what I was going to say is I um, saw my role as something much more at the public library as something really important to the community. Yeah. I remember a guy came up early in my time at the Oakland Public Library, this is like 2002, one or two, and he came up to me, African-American guy, and he's like, why are you a librarian? And, um, and I said, at first I was kind of taken aback, and I was like, oh, what is this question really about? <laughs> uh, and he said, how'd you get into this? And I said, do you want to know why I got into it or how I got into it, like the mechanics of how I got into it? And he's mm -hmm. like, well, why? I said, because every day I get to learn something new and every day I get an opportunity to teach you something new. So he was like, oh. And then he just kind of backed <laughs> away from the desk. Hey, simple answer. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, all, it's eternally appealing. Yeah, because a lot of people don't know that libraries are more than just, oh, you find a nice book on the shelf and like check it out, read it and bring it back. Libraries really are resource hubs. There's computers, printing, like what are some of the things that maybe people don't know um, with the resources that a library provides and then you can, that down, you've seen. You can watch movies, you know, people are subscribing to, I don't know, uh, Apple Plus or uh -huh. Netflix or whatever, but you can, there's like hundreds of movies that you can see for free with your library card. You can learn a language with your library card. Uh, you can download music mm -hmm. uh, on Hoopla. Uh, okay. With your library card, and so it's like you can read so much like cool you, stuff yeah, people don't know. Read, I read magazines now. I don't subscribe to magazines anymore because I couldn't get rid of them once they're in my house. So now I just download magazines. What people also don't know is, as a citizen of California, resident of California, you can uh, get a library card from any public library system. I just recently, a, a month ago got a, uh, we were in Burbank and we got a Burbank public library card because every community is subscribing to different things. Yeah. You, know, you know, LA Public Library has a way better magazine collection than Oakland. There so. you go, ooh, that's the tea. Right. <laughs> better, better check it out. I'm having a hard 
Here you go. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. I was just uh, talking about uh, you can have a public library card in any California community as a California resident. And I think it's worth using. You know, I've got a Berkeley public card and a San Francisco public library card, uh, LA, Burbank, Sacramento, wherever I go, I go to their library, see how they're operating, um, report back to Oakland Public and say, did you know that they have this, this, and this? Um, Brooklyn, I've gone to Brooklyn just to check their space out. Uh, um, so, yeah. I love it. Yeah, I have. <laughs> and so you published your book in 2023, and I think the timing is in context is really important. And the fact that you talked about very a lot of personal themes, you talked about you know diversity, things like that. Let's talk about book bans, since you have you know your eye, you kind of understand the ways that book bans are affecting you know motivation around wanting to tell your story. It could make someone not want to necessarily put it out there if it's like, hey, it's just going to get banned. And so. Where is that motivation to like, hey, I need to put my voice out there regardless to the people who want to tear it down? Where do you, how do you kind of stay consistent in that, knowing you know, the current climate? Well, the current climate should not impede anybody, stop anybody from wanting to publish a book or, or having a publisher um, try to, you know, or not, decide not to publish someone's book. Mm -hmm. I, there are far more people who support literature, support reading, um, than book banners. Mm. You know, when you talk to somebody who wants to ban a book, and fortunately we live in an area where a lot of people aren't trying to ban books. Yeah. But usually when you talk to somebody who is, oh, this book shouldn't be in the library. Yeah. And then when you get into specifics about exactly what part of the book did you find offensive, and then you usually find out they haven't even read the book. When you get down to specifics, um, tell me what scene you didn't like. Well, I heard that she said that my neighbor's cousin, mm -hmm. brother, yep, it's true. didn't like this, and I don't like that either. Okay, well, so it has really nothing to do with this actual book. Uh, most libraries have uh, some kind of reconsideration committee where they will listen to the public's um, feelings about a book or a movie. I sat on Oakland Maine's, um, Oakland Public's um, reconsideration committee for a while. And, and I only, during my short time on that committee, there was only like one, um, challenge is what they're called. There was only one challenge and it was about a film uh, that was not even like a narrative film. It mm -hmm. was kind of like raw data of the uh, Civil War in Sierra Leone. And it was basically just a snuff film. It was like butchery. It was no like narrative saying this is what you're this is why these people are fighting or this is what we're learning from this conflict mm -hmm. it was just violence and so i kind of agree it's like this does this have any kind of redeeming social value mm -hmm. at all or is it just violence and pornography really mm -hmm. 
So, I mean, it's those things. Uh, librarians do take it seriously. I feel like they know they need to be more in the forefront of, of uh, this kind of rhetorical conversation uh, that we're having because right now, where we are is we hear a lot on the news or in the news of uh, newspapers or something about book bans, but we don't hear how what how few uh, how little those people are yeah. versus the readers who support the library. And that's what I figured, yeah. And the other thing, the more uh, dangerous thing about book banning is, and I don't know if the public knows this, the vast majority of things that are being challenged and banned have to do with people of color, the LGBT community, um, and ironically, these are the people who are the least represented in the literature that's published yeah, in America. Exactly. And so it doesn't take, you know, just to pull an idea uh, from the president, the current president of the American Library Association. It, it doesn't take a huge mental leap to say, you know, you ban a book about, you know, you're a Native American uh, culture or your black history or your quinceanera ceremony. It, it doesn't take a, a, men, a big mental leap to get from ban the book about those people to ban those people. Mm. Mm. And so I feel like uh, we need to say as readers, as supporters of the library, that you know we will not tolerate this. Mm -hmm. This week coming up is banned book week. Mm. I will be wearing my banned book socks. Oh, is, is it a theme? It, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, every year we have a bad book week. It's usually the last week of September. This year it's the okay. uh, first week of October. Right on time. And uh, the way libraries have responded to uh, or, or commemorated banned book week is to have a display about banned books, mm -hmm. publish list of banned books. And the banned books, you'll if you read any list, there's incredibly great literature yep. on those lists. Things Catcher in the Rye, uh, lots of Toni Morrison, of you know, Sula, The Blue Inside, um, uh, uh, Song of Solomon, a lot of Baldwin. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just incredible literature that is trying to be barred for people. Mm -hmm. And, and um, the, the other way they uh, celebrate it or respond to book banning challenges is a wonderful thing happened last year. Last year, uh, they had the highest number of book bans in American history. Mm -hmm. Between 21, which was the record-breaking year, and then 20, uh, 2022, it broke that record. Mm -hmm. There were like, um, I don't know the exact number, but over 1,200 book titles. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if you guys go to bookstores, you know, we don't, uh, people of color don't represent the biggest group represented on bookstore shelves. And so to ban our literature is kind of like banning us. And then the final thing I'll say, is um, book banning has to do with fear. Yes, yeah, yeah. of course. 
fear of being replaced, fear of having your dominant narrative uh, challenged by having an alternative voice. And so, you know, someone asked me at one of my public events, are you afraid your book will be banned? Wouldn't it be kind of an odd, like a badge of honor? Like, <laughs> yeah, ban my stuff, That's yeah. Like ban my stuff. Yeah. Because yeah. you know what happens when you ban something, people rush out Exactly. <laughs> it seems a motivating factor, right. honestly. It, it doesn't become a hit until somebody bans it. Right. So ban my book. Yeah. You know, I got a kitchen to be modeled, you know? I love it. <laughs> Miss Dorothy's not afraid. No, Miss Dorothy's not afraid. Well, you know, it's just idiotic. It, it, it's idiotic. It's something. And then it, it's a fear of not just our voices replacing their voices, but it's a fear of, you know, because most of the book bans are coming from parents. Mm -hmm. um, it's a fear of you putting something out in the world where my kid knows that what I told him isn't true. quite true. Mm. Right. I think that's where that's coming uh, from, too. Yeah, right. I'm going to hand you back the mic. It's okay, oh, no. head turns into a train whistle. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation. I've actually appreciated the audience feedback, so I want to give time if folks do have questions from the audience. Um, you know, it's... Come up yeah, does, does anybody want to ask questions? I'd love some audience engagement. Yeah, come through. I mean, oh, my immediate question is about... Um, and we're recording, so if you want to say, if you want to say your name and your Hi. Question. Hi. First of all, it's such a pleasure to meet you. I listened to the episode on East Bay yesterday about you, and I just want to thank you for all your service, oh, for being you. here. Thank you. For reflecting back in my face what a ready reader looks like. <laughs> so I want to thank you. Um, also, I wanted to know about what your mentorship was in the library. Like that man asked you, like, how did you be a, become a librarian? And people tend to think like black people don't read, or you know, mm -hmm. readers aren't black. Um, did you have other uh, African American librarians behind you, or will we see more faces like you now that you're retired? What's the plan to keep this legacy going? Great question. That's a really good question. Um, well, I went to library school back in the dark ages when dinosaurs roamed the earth. <laughs> and so um, I was, we had 75, um, I'm just trying to give you a demographic idea of the field. We had 75 library school students uh, when I went to library school at UC Berkeley when they had a library school. And um, there were two black people, me and a guy named Michael. <laughs> and one guy from Africa. <laughs> that was the diaspora. Yes. We love it. Uh, and then um, in the profession, there's so few of us. There's so few of us. Uh, I at Oakland Public, at Oakland Main Library, I was the only black reference library. Now there are different kinds of librarians. There was people working in cataloging, people working in administration. I was the only uh, black reference library for my first 10 years there. Hmm. 10 years, that's yeah. disillusioning. No, like, well, you know, I have this attitude, and I don't know where I got it from, uh, if you're the only one, 
there you can't say that there are no black people because you're there. You know? True. And so for me, I just I didn't I noticed it, but it didn't stop me. Mm. And you talked about you asked me about mentors. Um, I had a lot of people there who didn't look like me, but they had faith in my ability. Mm. And so the two people that uh, really helped me were two people who were actually on my interview committee. And one who's publicly said, if we could have hired her at the interview, I would have hired her. But she also said something really important. And I was feeling kind of, uh, there were some years in my 20 years at Maine where I was feeling kind of beat down by administration and I felt like my vision for the library wasn't their vision for the library. And, and there was a lot of collegial, there was a little bit of collegial hate going on. And, um, and I wasn't feeling particularly supported. And then um, her name's Jean Langmuir and we're still friends, she pulled me aside and she said, notice when people come after you. Notice when people get really critical of you. Don't think about what they said. Think about what you just did. Mm. You know, you've improved this place. You've, you know, made this exhibits and, um, you know, the travel series was my idea, the fall history series was my idea. It's usually when you've done something really incredible that they come after you. That's true. And, and once she gave me that awareness, nobody could tell me anything then. <laughs> nobody could tell me anything then. You know, I came to pay that place back with my service mm -hmm. and the best job I could do because it meant that much to me, uh, that library, that particular building. Um, and so I just didn't let anybody stop me. I didn't uh, often ask for permission, can I start this program? It's just like I'm starting this, it's gonna happen on this day. Mm -hmm. Come, don't come. Well, we're here, <laughs> so I'll go. <laughs> well, as we wrap up, I wanted to Do you ask- have any other questions? Um, did anybody in the um, audience have another question? Yes, Let, and let's have you come up to the mic. Maria, oh, I, I can bring it to you. Thank you. Thank you. This is in reference to book banning. Yeah. And just recently, but within the last couple of weeks, I received, I think it's called a feed on one of the apps that I have. And it was terrifying because what it was was an aspect of book banning, but what it was was book burning, and it was in Mississippi, and it was current, and the books were literally being thrown into fire, and it was so reminiscent of Nazi Germany. Yeah, and I, I had never, I really had never put it into that context, but when I saw what it was, it was like crosses burning in my, in my brain and all of that other stuff. And so it, it's much, book banning, I'm realizing, is much, much worse because of, beyond what I thought it was, yeah. uh, if it leads to that. And clearly some, in some places in this country, it is leading to that. Mm -hmm. And it's terrifying. 
Miss Linda for that, and thank you, Maria, for that. Uh, just to say something about what Maria said, um, we are headed in the same way. You know, 1930s Germany was headed. We're headed in the same places. So I'm not shocked that there are book burnings, which I actually hadn't heard of since they were burning Beatles albums. You know? <laughs> um, but I'm not surprised, given where our country's going right now, but to Miss Linda's uh, point, you know, I at first I did have a problem. With, it's like it's not the same reading, you know. But uh, you know, I've downloaded some e-books, and it, it's the same book. It's just more swiping, uh, which I find annoying. But my thing now is I don't care as long as they're reading. You know, uh, I have a problem with people saying, you know, audiobook is the same as reading. No, it isn't. I mean, you do get the story, but your brain uh, registers visual information in a different way than audio information. Uh, but, you know, I don't mind people reading uh, e-books. Last night, I was just at my old high school library, Kalsmaa High School Library, uh, dedicating the school library, which now is called the Media Center because everybody's mm. on a machine, mm -hmm. uh, dedicating the library, which I still call library, to uh, my school library, Naomi Kalsmaa and who passed away in 2018. And that was a, one thing I really, really wanted to do, dedicate that room to her that she had worked in for over 20 years. But uh, the thing that's so shocking to me is how few books are in that library. And I'm not just comparing it to when I was a kid. I'm just comparing it to just in general. Mm -hmm. You know, you got all these bookcases, but now it's filled with graphic novels and and the thing about a graphic novel, I like graphic novels, but the thing about a graphic novel is you don't get the uh, fullness or richness of a narrative. You don't get, uh, you know, because graphically there's just not space to go into the interior of a character's motivation and how they feel, what they're smelling. You know, you can't, uh, there's no interior, there's a very limited interiority just because of the format, so. But you know, one thing I've had to learn in, in life uh, as I develop more and more gray hair is, um, you know, things change and, you know, we just gotta roll with it. Mm -hmm. um, 
But yeah, literacy, it's a thing. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And now that you are in your retirement, I know we were saying earlier, you have so much to do. You know, you're doing events and things like this, but what are ways that we can continue to support you and where can we find your work and, you know, buy your book? And what do we have to look forward to next? Today, $20. Here we go. Um, hold on, hold on. Let the people know. We got to amplify you. Oh, wait a minute. It's, uh, you can buy my book today. It's $20. And oh. Demarian's uh, waving at me to tell me something. I just thought, oh, I mean, I don't need to, you know. And we're also going to You want the mic? Yeah. We, got, we got something to say? No. He has something to say. We love it. Yeah, I was just, um, like, when I heard the, the can people hear me? Yeah, they can now. When I heard the, um, I heard, um, this person talking about, um, you know, like, the, the, like, the computers in schools, um, being, like, I'm, like, working in libraries and in schools, like, um, with, how can I say? Because I, I do agree, like, you know what I mean? Like, um, like, as long as people are reading, in schools, I feel, I feel like it's different from like in libraries because I feel like we're you know we're like we're pushing them towards like what they want to what they want to find what they want to look at and sometimes in schools like uh, when there's people who are like behind you know what I mean I feel like there's some people like from what I've seen like in the past couple of years of teaching like there's some kids who can't um, like necessarily function without the computer you know what I mean so I think that's kind of like was kind of kind of scary and dystopian. It's like there are some kids who are like very intelligent, but it's like they can only kind of show it on the technology. But if you were to like write on a piece of paper or not like in terms of like spelling and reading. Um, so I guess uh, um, like I guess like would that be kind of like concerning at all? You know what I mean? Like when there's um, <laughs> I love the dialogue. Thank you. So uh, I'll be over there to sell books in a second. Um, I just want to speak to that. You got to take people in their context. Now the kids who are going through school and even maybe some of their parents, there's always been a computer. There's always been the internet. You know, the internet came out in 1996. If you were born any time after that, you're basically a computer native. And uh, it's, it's something that comes very natural to that. I think the burden to make people buried in their reading abilities uh, has to do with what they're introduced to as young students, as children in the home. If you introduce them to handheld books, paper books, they will feel comfortable with it. But I think people, I think I know what you're saying. I think people do see, see that kind of as a crutch. But culturally, it's going to impact us. Because when I worked at the Oakland History Center, uh, I worked with young people, you know, middle school kids who uh, had to do homework projects. And I'm thinking of Thornhill, uh, I think Thornhill's a middle school. Um, they had
had to do some projects where they're uh, making reports, uh, biographical profiles on people who were in the Civil War, who were buried up in Mountain View Cemetery. Um, and I give them information, you know, here's a voter's register from 1890, here's a death certificate from 1902 or something like that. Thing is, they couldn't read it mm. because they couldn't read cursive. And so what, over time, does that do to our historic record? Which, you know, hundreds of years, where it was handwritten. And so those are the things that are more concerning to me. The inability to read a type of script that they're unfamiliar with because they're reading everything online. And, and not knowing how to write cursive either. So that part. Anyway, I know we are trying to move on here. No, it's so. okay. It was really fruitful. Thank you for your questioning. Um, did anybody else have any questions before we moved on? Um, and so before, yes, and so before we end our programming, we are going to be giving, um, doing a raffle. Dave, do you want to? Um, I just want to make sure, does anybody not have a raffle ticket? Right, you got the red raffle ticket? Right, good, all right. Everybody got